The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. So we've been talking since the beginning of the new year about practice as a path, this practice, this path that the Buddha set in motion as a path of uh, inquiry. And I think generally Westerners, we like that. I mean, we're, I don't know, maybe this is just a stereotype, but we seem to be okay about inquiry, taking a look at, investigating. But this is a little different. It's not meant to be just an intellectual um, pursuit. But the idea is that we use the thinking mind as a way of uh, creating a lens into onto our present moment experience. So it does require some thinking. It's like we've created such a web of thoughts and concepts and basically our whole life is built on our thoughts and interpretations. So it, that what that means is we need thoughts then to go beyond it. Just the thought that um, we're often caught up in our thoughts is a very useful thought. Because it, it, it like shines a light. You know, just to hear that thought that, you know what? Most of the time we're lost in our thoughts about things. Just to hear that thought all of a sudden does something to our mind. It's like we look. Or is this true? And see, when we look and see, ask that question, is it true? Then, then we're, we're looking right at the present moment, which is exactly the essence of real inquiry or spiritual inquiry is that we're looking into the heart of things or into the mind, into the way it is here and now, not abstractly or theoretically, but how it is right now. And uh, now after having talked about meditation or this path of awakening as a path of inquiry, I mentioned that it's the reason it's useful to understand that is then we begin to see how all the meditation strategies, meditation techniques, really are about this inquiry. And it's important to understand like why we do what we do, like why do we pay attention to the breath? Why do we sit still? Why do we go someplace quiet? And of course, these are just training mechanisms and we're training in a way that supports inquiry, or usually the way we call it here uh, in the West, we call it insight. I mentioned a couple weeks ago that there's this ancient simile of the snake and the rope, and it's, I think, a useful simile to keep remembering that um, um, our whole life basically is based on lies, on our misperceptions. So if we, if we keep running into something in the dark woods that looks like a snake and acting as if it is a snake, then that, that sort of defines our life quite a bit. And when one day we realize it's just a rope, it's not a snake, never was a snake. It's like a profound realization or transformation in our life. And so if we can just uh, open to that possibility, that, that the essence of that simile is true for us, that we're taking something to be a snake when it's really a rope. And every time we take it to be a snake, in a way, we're conditioning the mind to see the rope as a snake. So every time we, you know, the problem is every time we take things personally, every time we think dualistically, me and you, this and that, it's like seeing a snake that's actually a rope. But every time we do it, it starts to look more and more like there's me 
experiencing the world. Me, apart from the world. There's the world's out there, and I'm here. Which is why it's such a strong perception for us to see things that way. So, this path of inquiry begins with just noticing what that's like to always have that view. So, we call this dukkha, <laughs> suffering. To always be thinking of ourselves apart from the whole, which is the conventional way we human beings live, is stressful. Because as soon as we feel that we're apart from the whole, we feel there's something that needs to be protected. And then we're aware of anything that appears to be a slight you know, or an insult, and we react. And anything we think we like, we really want to get a hold of it because of this sense of separation. And, you know, we give a lot of lip service to this being a problem. Like even at the inaugural, I'm sure a number of you listened to some of the, like the benediction and the speech by President Obama and some of the other uh, words that were spoken. It's, you know, this is sort of part of our popular wisdom, you know, where we talk about how we've got to work together, you know, none of this, you know, dog eat dog, we've got to work together or we're going to sink. And so in many ways, sometimes very beautiful ways, this is talked about. But the problem is we don't often hear really good strategies for overcoming our tendency to see ourselves apart from the whole. This habit of misperceiving and seeing the self as separate and apart, uh, isolated even, is uh, really uh, strong. But because it's stressful, it's fundamentally stressful to live that way, to live out of that view. That's our wake-up. It's like our precious alarm clock is suffering. Because <laughs> what does suffering say to us? Like when we have this background stress or uneasiness or anxiousness or loneliness or neediness, when we have this sort of pervasive, even when things are going well, this sort of a pervasive uneasiness, it's like our life is shaking us, grabbing our shoulders and shaking us and saying, something's off here. Something's not working. This can't be it. Doesn't feel good. Doesn't feel safe. Doesn't feel like the heart can rest, that the heart can be at ease. So this is where inquiry begins, is instead of just doing the same thing over and over again, seeking happiness through this lens of self-centeredness, we begin to investigate the experience of being apart, being separate. In other words, we just investigate how it is for us. Instead of immediately trying to be happy, we investigate the experience of being uneasy and unhappy. And so that's how we move along. And we begin to see the force of attachment. We begin to see how attachment and suffering are synonymous. And when there's attachment, there's suffering or stress. When there's not attachment in the mind, there's freedom from suffering. We really start to get that dynamic. And then this is where meditation practice or a spiritual path comes into play. Because then we, we, have, we, we have the beginning, like an intuitive sense of the training that needs to happen or the the transformation of view that needs to happen in the mind. And then the question becomes, well, how do we implement it? How do we operationalize it? How do we train in being wise as opposed to being deluded, self-centered? How does a human being actually systematically train in being in alignment with wholeness as opposed to acting out of separateness because it's the habit of the culture? And it's, uh, you know, it's one of those classic things, chicken and egg things, where it's like the way to begin this training is with the right view. <laughs> you know, so it's like a setup. Well, how do you do that? But that, that's just our predicament. 
It's like in order to begin the practice, if we begin our practice, whatever it is, whether it's formal sitting practice or trying to be a more loving, kind, open-hearted, trusting human being in the world out there, you know, in our daily life. So whatever kind of practice we're taking on, we have to begin with right view to whatever degree we can uh, manifest that right view. So even in our formal sit, which I, I promised to start talking more specifically about our, our formal sitting practice, then it's good to take some time at the beginning of each sit, even if you're just sitting for a couple minutes, that's all you have, or you're sitting for an hour, but to start out by bringing to mind right view. Like tonight, I gave a really concrete example of how you might do that. Because this normal, conventional view of self-centeredness, it's like an inner gravitational pull. It's all about me, my needs. And see, if we do our meditation practice with that view, we're reinforcing the basic problem, which is the self-centered orientation, the separateness. So we have to begin, as much as we can, we have to begin our meditation practice or begin each day from a different point of view. And there are many ways to flip this point of view. It's not that it's going to be perfect, but it will, at least to some degree, unhook the mind from the deluded point of view, the self-centered point of view, and open the mind, open the heart to a more wise, uh, selfless point of view, view beyond self-centeredness. And so one technique like we did tonight, the mudita practice, it's very straightforward because, you know, when we're in our normal mode, it all, everything, all of our dramas revolve around a sense of me, apart from everything else. But when we do something as simple as remembering, you know, seeing Sasha on the news yesterday and smiling at her daddy, and just remember that little kid doing that and just tuning in to, in that moment, it appeared that this child was happy, that the daughter of Michelle and Barack was happy, and we just sort of connect with that and, and, and recognize this very authentic wish that I think probably all of us can have, which is, may your happiness continue, may it increase may it never end. That's not a very difficult wish for a human heart to generate, unless we're in a really difficult or needy place. And then if we reflect over and over again on some thought like that, some image and thought like that, you see how it flips the orientation. Because now, instead of an inner gravitational pull, there's kind of an upwelling, a movement out. You know, we call that generosity. It's the generosity of the heart. The heart actually likes to flow this way. Did you notice? I don't know if you could tune, if you got into the practice at all, you might have noticed it actually feels good for the heart to flow out instead of for the heart to flow in. Because now when the heart's flowing out, it's in alignment with the nature of things. Because the nature of things, you know, from a Buddhist point of view, is there's no center anywhere. But we certainly imagine that there's a center, like me. I'm a center, and you're, you know, I assume you're a center. And we kind of live out of this centric view of things. Like, there's lots of centers. But, you know, we all know intellectually there's no center, you know, because we study science, and science doesn't talk about centers. It's just the movement of energy. Subtle, gross energy, all kinds of different energy, all interacting, kind of a big soup of things. But there's no center to the soup, although it feels that way because of our habit. So when we do something as simple as appreciative joy practice, where we bring to mind somebody that's happy, and because it's a relatively easy image to hold, you know, if your good friend just got a new job or good friend fell in love, and is happy, or, you know, whatever it might be. Seeing all those happy people on the mall, yes, the image I was using, 
so many people, including myself, being happy. And then just remembering that and wishing that that happiness continue. Changes our point of view. Now the, the point of view is one of love, of kind of a boundless or a unconditioned love or joy. So it, there's no center. It may feel like I love, but actually if we do the practice right, we don't need the I wish well for you. I want you to be happy. It's just the, the joy itself or the compassion itself or the kindness itself, which is just the movement. It's a movement, and actually, we'll begin to discover it can go any direction. So you might have started with a specific image, like a little girl who's very happy, and then it can easily expand, like all the people in this room. To whatever degree you're happy, may your happiness continue. May it increase. May it never end. And the squirrels that have sunflower seeds, you know, and the people whose cars start. That's a kind of happiness. So there's really no end to this sort of change of view. Everything can basically fuel it. And then when you bump up against a lot of suffering, it's okay because the heart's, this way of being is very nimble, very responsive. So then it's just, you know, I care about your compassion. I mean, I care about your suffering, excuse me. I care about your suffering. I care about your pain. I care about your loss. May you be at ease with the conditions of your life. May you find peace with things as they are. And see, that also is sort of a, just more of the same, that sort of upwelling or that natural movement of the heart, as opposed to the habit that we have, which is to pull inward which is tight and constricted and heavy and oppressive, which is why we feel stress in our lives, why we're interested in a spiritual path. So what I want to dig in tonight and then uh, open it up and hear from you is just different ways during our daily life, but specifically in meditation practice, different ways at the beginning of a sit we might be able to flip our self-centered attitude to something uh, in alignment with a deeper understanding that there is no center. And so, in Buddhism, you know, wrong view is comes out of the three unwholesome roots: greed, aversion, and not seeing things clearly, which we call delusion. So then if we want to flip that, so when we sit down to sit, because our mind is operating in its normal mode, that means it's under the influence of greed or aversion or delusion or some combination of those three things. And, you know, as someone interested in mindfulness, we start getting really good at noticing the various influences on our mind in any given moment because we're paying attention. That's the whole point, is we begin to see. So the question is, you know, just seeing greed or seeing aversion or seeing delusion doesn't necessarily help us so much. Especially in the beginning, what we want to do is, in some way, some clever way, we want to practice so that there's some degree, some force of non-greed, non-aversion, non-delusion in the mind. So when you think of non-greed, you know, we usually, in Buddhism, we often talk about it in the negative, but for us it may be more useful to imagine what is non-greed. Like, how could we bring up a view of generosity, or a view of renunciation, or a view of contentment at the beginning of a sit, or at the beginning of a day, or any moment in the day? So when we're feeling a lot of neediness or craving, lust, then we could, we could possibly transform the mind, initially at least, by reflecting on contentment. You know, actually recognize contentment. Like, you know, it feels really nice to have these clothes on. That just, I like these clothes. They feel comfortable on my body. 
it's not a big thing, but if we pay close attention to even a not so big thing, it becomes meaningful. You know, and so even like ordinary, the ordinary experience of comfort, or if you had a nice dinner tonight and you're feeling not hungry, so you could really pay attention to the contentment of not being hungry. Or if you feel like some part of your life is stable and uh, sort of in a comfortable way, like a particular relationship is sort of healthy. And you could reflect on that with contentment, with gratitude. And you see how it's not so hard. What keeps the mind in craving and neediness is just habit. You know, it's just like it's a little bit exciting to keep, you know, obsessing about what we want, what we think we need, what we lust after. It kind of we are in a way addicted to the tension, to the intensity of feeling needy. But as somebody interested in inquiry and seeing things more deeply, the being caught, even in a subtle way, being caught up in craving distorts the mind. That's that basic snake rope problem. As long as there's the mind is hooked on some neediness, it's like we won't see things clearly. We won't be able to actually inquire into our experience as it actually is. So that's why the first step has to be to loosen the grip of our self-centered view. And we have three ways of doing that. Reflecting on non-greed. So generosity, gratitude, simplicity, you know, the joy of simplicity, the joy of renunciation. I talk to a lot of people at times who, because of their maybe retreat experiences or for whatever reason, there's a real, in their minds, there's a real powerful recognition of the joy of renunciation. Normally when we hear the word renunciation, we think, oh my God, you know, life is hard enough. Don't talk to me about renunciation. That for those of us who've been able to practice with it, what human beings, I think, generally recognize is it's a real joy to be free of needing a lot of things. You know, like when you're someplace where you're, you're given a very simple meal once a day, you know, and the routine is very simple and there's not much room for that much flexibility and there's not a lot of distractions. On the one hand, it may appear to be a hell realm, but the mind tends to get used to it, especially if we move into it gradually, and really appreciates not having to decide, am I going to do this, am I going to do that, what TV program am I going to watch, oh, I missed that, how am I going to make it up? Those things cause stress. But when all of that is eliminated, like the quintessential example is a monk or a nun, where they basically have one outfit, you know, and... Uh, their life is very regimented. But there's a lot of joy in that. Some of you who have kids, which I know is very uh, chaotic, but the one thing about having children that you sometimes recognize, the kind of joy you recognize in, a, in the parents, is that it really simplifies their life, especially during the time when the child is young. It's like, this is what their life is about. Or if you've had a job like that, or a job that went through a period like that, where it really took everything you had for a period of time, there's a kind of joy in that. And just being allowing your life to be consumed by something that's wholesome, like taking care of a small child, or getting involved in a cause. So these are one of the ways to bring up that, so to take a moment and to reflect on the joy of renunciation, gratitude for or contentment for what we have, for the possessions we have. Even devotion is a quality of non-greed. Like to be uh, really appreciative of these teachings, you know, to sit down at your meditation and for a few minutes just to reflect on how how much you appreciate knowing about meditation practice, appreciate these teachings that men and women have 
developed in their own minds and hearts and then passed it on to the next generation for so long. And just to be devoted and appreciative, to be filled with love in that way, that kind of devotional way, is the opposite of greediness. It's a feeling of, of like being full, having received something that you appreciate. Same with appreciating people's love that they have for you or their, uh, their respect that you feel from people. So that's one thing you can do. Then another, like to take non-aversion, like how do we cultivate non-aversion? Well, the easiest way to remember this is just the, like mudita we did tonight, the appreciative joy. There are actually four of these flavors of non-aversion. There's metta or the friendliness, loving kindness, right? So that's one, just the basic gentle, loving tenderness of the heart and cultivating that by bringing a good friend to mind or bringing some auntie who has just loved you unconditionally when you were a kid and now is old and in a nursing home somewhere. Just bringing her to mind and sending out your good wishes to her. May you be happy. May you be free from suffering. May you be at ease. You know, you can just use any phrases that kind of reflect the feeling you have for the person. Or mudita, like we did tonight, where you're specifically looking at happiness and wishing it to continue. It's basically seeing that your happiness is a cause for happiness here and now in this heart, this mind. And then there's compassion practice and equanimity practice. So... The non-aversion, the basic way of practicing non-aversion is learning to see what's beautiful. And when there's suffering, it's still possible to see what's beautiful because what's beautiful when there's suffering is the I care about you. It's the caring itself that's beautiful. It's not the person suffering isn't beautiful, but the fact that this heart cares about it and wishes well for the person that is beautiful, and we can pay attention to that. Or when we remember somebody who's really been there for us, and we send out our good wishes to them, that's beautiful. Or when we recognize somebody's joy or happiness, and we wish that it continued, well, that's beautiful. Or even equanimity, just that impartial sort of appreciation that things can't be other than they are. You know, given this web of causes and conditions, things really can't be other than they are. And to see that is also beautiful. It's a more subtle kind of beauty. But if you recognize that it's beautiful, then you can reflect on equanimity, too. It's considered one of these qualities of the heart, like loving kindness and compassion and appreciative joy. Equanimity is in that same grouping. So any of these four reflections is a wonderful way to begin the meditation period. And again, it could be 30 seconds, it could be five minutes. It doesn't have to be a long time. But all we're doing is we're reorienting our attitude from a self-centered inner gravitational pull to something that is a, a kind of a reflective of the natural movement of the heart or the non-centeredness of the heart, the heart that moves, energy that moves. And non-delusion is another way to transform the heart. So, like how we uproot our misperceiving, our misperceptions, is to uh, reflect, to sort of bring something to mind that clarifies the view. And the Buddha has many examples of this. One of the most common and easy to remember, it's called the five remembrances. And this is a, it's something you so easy to do at the beginning of a sit is just to say each of these five remembrances that the Buddha said, recommended that we all do every day. So you could do this at the beginning of your sit. And this helps correct delusion. So the five remembrances are, this body is of the nature to get sick. I have not gone beyond sickness. And then you just sort of let that sit in because when we're not sick, unconsciously we think, you know, I'm never going to be sick again. I mean, I know intellectually we know we're going to be sick, but why else would we, would we be surprised and disappointed when we get sick? 
because somehow we had this assumption that I shouldn't be sick. <laughs> so we actively recall, this body is of the nature to get sick. I've not gone beyond sickness. We let that sink in, then we recall, this body is of the nature to age. I have not gone beyond aging, right? Because we get content with the particular youthfulness we have, whatever that is. Forgetting that we're in this process towards breakdown. This body is of the nature to die. I have not gone beyond dying, beyond death. And just that is like recalling that we don't know when it's going to happen. Nobody does. And uh, just to sort of remember that is transforms our delusion you know because our delusion is we is you know we basically assume that death is something that happens to other people usually we don't have a sense that death happens to me to this and then the fourth one is everything i care about will be lost i have not gone beyond loss and then the last one, the fifth remembrance, is this equanimity again. So it goes something like, uh, and I'm paraphrasing, um, I am the owner of my actions, heir to my actions. Everything, uh, whatever has been sown, I'll reap that result. So whatever has been set in motion by my actions will land here in this heart, with this mind. And those are all, you know, for non-delusion, you need sobering reflections. These are five sobering reflections. You could just remember one of them, but probably you get the sense of them, so it won't be so hard to recall at least a few of them. And that's something you might do. Now, you don't need to do all three of these, you know, work with non-delusion, non-greed, and non-aversion. You might just pick one and just work with it for you know, two or six months for the first minute or so of your sit. could be a little bit more, depending on how much time you feel you need to, uh, to uh, restore some balance to your perception, to kind of uproot some degree of this self-centeredness. I'll give you a couple other of the uh, non-delusion reflections. One simple one is just to remind yourself of your commitment to honesty, self-honesty. It's like, as in a way, it's like uh, seeing it as the one beacon in your life, the one uncompromising thing, self-honesty. So I may lie to other people, but I'm not going to lie to myself. And I, and by that I mean. I am interested in seeing things as they actually are. You know, not sort of pretending to myself that I'm doing this when I'm really doing that. Like we do, right? It's, it's really astounding when we think about it. But the thing is, we don't think about it. We don't think about the fact how dishonest we are with ourselves. We, in a way, give ourselves permission to tell ourselves lies. I mean, but it's so strange when we actually think about what we're doing. Like, why would we have to tell ourselves lies? Or what value is there in not being honest with ourselves? What are we afraid of? I mean, are we afraid of the truth? So this, is th this practice would be saying that the truth may be difficult, but denying the truth is more difficult. It's like remembering that. It's like setting that kind of in front of ourselves. I am a, more than anything, I am a de devotee of truth, seeing things as they are, and, uh, and willing to be fearless about that. And you can even say that to yourself, you know, like, uh, may this heart, may this mind be fearless, honest, willing to actually see how it is, know how it is. And in Buddhism, the way that that often manifests is a uh, greater and greater degree of understanding change or impermanence. And you get this flavor from those five reflections. 
and dukkha, the unsatisfactoriness of experience. You also get a flavor of that from those five remembrances that I mentioned. And the impersonal nature of experience, these are called the three characteristics. Many of you know these well. If you don't, if you're relatively new, don't try to remember all of these things that I'm bringing up. Each one of them is like a, something you can reflect on for the rest of your life, and that would be fine for your whole practice. But I'm just sort of putting it out there because there are many ways to take a few minutes at the beginning of the sit, and it can be quite potent. And there's a tendency I, I find in myself and in others to want to rush right into like being with the breath or, you know, it's like we, we want to avoid sort of uh, settling in, the settling in. And part of the settling in process is to correct the view. It's really the most profound part. And, you know, just coming into the posture is already part of that because one of the things, the normal way we're living life is we're a little bit rushing and uh, um, just kind of being oblivious to everything. So just the, the kind of ease and the stillness in the body and the composure of the body and mind, that's already changing our view, right? Because our view is mostly like not to be composed, to be rushing, to be doing, as opposed to being still. So just coming into a still sitting posture, relaxing in that posture, having a sense of presence, like a willingness to feel or be, to know what's going on, is already a pretty radical change. And that's just another way to actually correct the view. It's just to use your coming into the appropriate posture as a way to change your attitude, the view that you have. So I'll leave it here so that we have time to check in with each other. And any questions would be appropriate um, from the practice or from the talk. But also, what would be appropriate are any comments that you have, like how you work with changing your attitude or changing your view, especially those of you who have practiced for a while. You might have your own way of moving from a self-centered inner gravitational pull to a more, what we call in Buddhism, right view or non-self view. So any thoughts or questions that you have? Yeah. So the way the Buddha described it, the the basic uh, movement of the heart when <clears throat> we're living out of a self-centered point of view is to cling. And that clinging manifests in two ways. It manifests as aversion or greed or craving. Right? So we have craving and aversion. The clinging, the grasping, is really the same. The dukkha, the suffering, is really the same. But it's just different manifestations of it. So with aversion, there's a pushing away or wanting to destroy or wanting to deny. And with the greed, there's a wanting to hold, wanting to protect wanting to get. But the actual experience of the heart isn't that different. The content is different, you know, what we're seeing. But the, the squeeze on the heart, you know, feels the same pretty much. Yeah, Casey. I have a follow-up question. Uh, when we were revolted by something, uh, like the Holocaust, just to mm -hmm. It seems that you could be revolted by that, but not take it personally. So would it be aversion, or is that not aversion? Yeah. Well, the thing about uh, observing or bringing to mind suffering is, even though it doesn't have to do with us, there's uh, the revulsion. This is even true with, uh, you know, when we're seeing somebody who's suffering, something more personal. It's like. Uh, when we don't want to be close to somebody suffering, like when we um, want to do something, but we don't want to just sit there with them, 
you know, like we're happy to go buy groceries for them, but just to sit there in their bedroom with them, we don't want to do. That's kind of a telltale sign that we're taking their suffering personally. It's like their vulnerability is reminding us of our vulnerability. Or, so I'm not sure what the Holocaust might remind people of, but maybe it reminds us of, you know, for me, it might remind me of a kind of coldness and chaos that we live with, that we all live with, that this that kind of characterizes our existence. And kind of in an existential way, you know, makes a cold shudder. And then that might lead to the revulsion that people have. Some people have a revulsion because they think they should, you know. So there's, you never really know unless we look like why the heart's reacting, why the mind's reacting the way that it is. And basically, we're looking at the causal network, like this image, the heart did this. When the heart did this, there was this feeling, you know. So it just depends on like, if when you deconstruct the experience, you, you might get a sense of what the trigger was. Was it aversion? Was it some kind of craving? What kind of aversion was it? Was it fear, which is a kind of aversion? You know, was it more like uh, an anxiety, a worry, you know, that we're not out of this yet, this could happen again? So there are different flavors. But if there's suffering, you know, if the heart's really afflicted or oppressed in some way, then there's some identification. It's like, and this, you know, I'm just saying this now theoretically, but I, I think I made this point last week. What's really important in the process of inquiry, whether we're doing our city meditation or just out in the world, is for us to begin to see that whenever the heart feels heavy, stressed, tight, pressed, whenever the heart is suffering, even mild way, big way, there's always something there happening too. And you can call that wrong view or self-centeredness or attachment or identification. So they're different words, but you want to see that this activity in the heart arises with suffering. If there's not this activity, there's no suffering. When there's this, there's suffering. Without this, there's no suffering. We want to get that because that, that helps us understand what needs to be abandoned, like how to live without the attachment, without the identification. What would that be like? Other thoughts people have? How was the mudita practice? Did anybody notice that it changed their attitude in a little or big way? Yeah, Clint. Maybe a little louder so they can. I'm really glad you brought that up. I've been practicing for about a year and a half now, and I've kind of hit a stale place, if you will. Uh, I think because I, I sit every morning, and, and what you said about how important it is to take that first few moments. I think I, I get right into the breath, you know, and then the next thing in my mind is gone, and ten minutes have gone by, and I'm like, yeah. whoa, where did I just go? And so.
tonight, which is we need to start off with right view. Because if we don't start off with right view, whatever follows from our activity, whether it's meditation or anything else, is going to follow from wrong view. So we're just reproducing wrong view and the consequences of that. And the reason why we don't like to do this is that part of wrong view is this taking the view seriously, as if it's really this way. So when we are feeling a lot of fear, like as a nation, I think we have generally, I mean, obviously it's a huge sort of generalization, but we've been feeling a lot of fear. And, and then it begins to feel inappropriate to feel anything else, right? And so when we train ourselves to reestablish right attitude, right view, we're, we're immediately calling into question the seriousness to which we bring, the seriousness we bring to our wrong view whether it's craving or fear or aversion or delusion. So seriously, so personally, it, it feels inappropriate to cultivate a different view, to sort of do that flip. So that's why it's good to make it something you do so that you actually do it. And don't let your thoughts of thinking this is stupid, this is wrong, convince you. Because what could be wrong about bringing to mind somebody who's happy and wishing that their happiness continue. I mean, what's wrong about that? But your mind will feel, I know, I mean, personally, my mind tells me, don't do that. <laughs> That's not appropriate, you know, because your life isn't good enough, you know, so who am I to be wishing, well, mm, what about me? <laughs> or something like that. <laughs> Other thoughts people have? Yeah, Stacy. You run into a little snag of the in, in that of the wishing it to continue forever because nothing will be forever, mm -hmm. and it seems a little wah wah. I mean, I love everything about it, but. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but but it, that's true. That the. The fact that it might last forever is probably improbable, but <laughs> the wish that it lasts forever is very real. I can really have the wish that whatever happiness you have, whatever health you have, that it lasts forever. I can have that wish. And that wish is real, even though I know very well that things come and go, and your life will go up and down, like everybody else's life. I know that very clearly, and yet it in no ways gets in the way of me wishing that your happiness continue and never end and increase. Yeah. <laughs> or maybe you can wish for that happiness to continue, but not the thing that is. Yeah. Yeah, and that brings to mind, which is, because the real answer to your question, Stacey, I was just kind of making a different point. But the real answer to your question is, change the phrases so they work for you. But remember, the phrase will always be a little bit um, like that, like when you. You know, when you're someone who's suffering and you say, may, you know, I care about your suffering, you know, may you be at ease with these conditions. You know, they may not be at ease with the conditions. They may never be at ease. But the wish is still a beautiful thing, that they be at ease with the pain in their life or the loss of, in their life. So remember that when non-aversion isn't about us fixing the world, non-aversion is changing the attitude in the mind where we're sending out something beautiful. Because aversion is a kind of inner poison. Like when we have resentment, it's really this yucky thing. So to have non-aversion is really to the heart manifesting something beautiful. And it's beautiful when we wish for somebody's happiness, even if they're not going to, even if it ends up that they're never going to be happy forever. You know, It's still a beautiful wish to wish that someone be happy. It's a beautiful thought. Anything else come to mind? Go ahead. 
Mm-hmm. Oh, great. Yeah. Um, well, this talking about wishing other people well, I guess what, because I get stuck on the words. You know, it's like I, it's like I, as soon as I start thinking the words or saying the words in my head, I, I lose track of the feeling. But it's really, what occurs to me is it's really having an intention for someone else. Yeah. And so, it, it, and the words are not the intention. Yeah. And so what I see in that is, okay, if I'm getting stuck in the words, maybe this is an opportunity for inquiry yeah. into what's the intention all, really all about. And that gets into the visualization, which is something else I struggle with. Yeah. And so, and then the point Greg is making is the whole path is about inquiry. So we have to do inquiry just to know what the best phrase is to use. And then when it's not working, like Greg suggests, then when it, and we've sort of tried it from this angle and that angle, and it's just not working, that's the point then again to inquire, like, what's in the way? What is in the way of bringing somebody to mind and wishing them well? And the other point that Greg made, made that I think is worth repeating, the visualizing the person or remembering the person and the re- repetition of the phrases, they're both more concrete supports for the um, strengthening of the intention. It's the intention that's really doing the work. But intention's a very it's a subtle thing in the mind. And so if we actually have a person and words, it actually helps us to connect with the intention and to reinforce that intention and thereby get to uproot or to at least temporarily suppress the diluted intentions, you know, about me. Um, good. Any last thoughts, or should we end it here? Why don't we just let go of the words then, take a moment to breathe and to come back to the experience of the body. And to appreciate a beautiful community we have here and to appreciate these very practical and profound teachings that have been passed down for so long, people doing their best to develop the practice in their lives and then share it as best they can. And in some amazing sort of way, it ends up at this corner in Minneapolis with this group of people practicing together. It's truly a beautiful thing that we can appreciate and use it as an inspiration to do our best to cultivate wisdom and compassion, to inquire and realize what we haven't yet realized. May our practice support the happiness and well-being all beings without exception. Thanks everyone for coming. We ask for your good wishes tomorrow. We may have